Welcome to another session of Boulder Bolting. I'm Keith Ruckhouse and I'm here with Alex Zucatus and we're going to continue our discussion of international trade and so I'm going to just hand it right over to Alec. He's already got some notes prepared as for how we're going to continue from our last session. So take it away, Alec. Well, good morning all or good day. Last time we ended with the idea that economists as a profession, from uh, Adam Smith through David Ricardo, through virtually all modern economists, have uh, lauded the idea of free trade. Samuelson was uh, uh, said that uh, economists differ about a variety of issues, but with respect to free trade, there is unanimity that free trade is a good thing without any exception. And this is what is taught through, by and large, all of the textbooks that are used in universities to this day. And it's based on the ideas of David Ricardo. And that is, all trade, including international trade, needs to be conducted on the basis of comparative advantage. That is to say, what you're good at in comparison with other nations or other people or other businesses who are uh, better than you are in most everything, but that you are comparatively better than any of the other options. So that even if you're not good at producing something, it's still the case that you need to produce whatever it is you're good at producing, comparatively speaking. You should specialize in that, and the other nations should specialize in what they're superb at. You should exchange, and it's still the case that both parties are going to benefit. Right. So this is what lends so much status to the notion that free trade is a good thing for everyone, not some people or some nations or some companies at the expense of others. Now, what's the principal criticism that has emerged against that? And that, by and large, is the rise of corporations to becoming global corporations. Because the conditions that David Ricardo gave for his uh, theories to actually be correct, namely that all countries could benefit from free trade, depends on two assumptions. And the two assumptions are that all uh, production needs to be domestic, both in terms of labor and also in terms of capital. So that, for example, Japan would produce Japanese cars with Japanese labor and Japanese capital. 
If either of those two conditions, let alone both, do not hold, then the benefits from international trade coming out of the theories of uh, David Ricardo disappear altogether, not a little bit, but altogether. So now with the rise of global corporations, that's what we mean when we say globalization and global corporations, is that not only consumption can be global, but production has become global. So in the past, you could have production domestically, but consumption internationally. That is to say, you produce Japanese cars with Japanese uh, capital and Japanese labor. Americans produce uh, wheat with, uh, with American capital and with American labor. They exchange and both uh, societies benefit. But here we're talking about using or producing Japanese cars with American capital right. or American uh, uh, labor, right? You have a Japanese company bringing its production to the United States and using American labor. So the conditions for free trade being a good thing are wiped out. And yet we continue to argue that free trade is a good thing for all parties involved. So there is a substantial uh, sleight of hand that is used here without really looking at not just the details, but the principal arguments of David Ricardo. So that means that means that something that really is emerging for us, that economics as taught in the university and as practiced by nations has become an ideology and not a discipline. Correct. I mean, we, you and I both <laughs> agree on that, yeah, understand yes, yes, that. But, but I'm just saying that there is some kind of rising of consciousness about that. It's an ideology that we're talking about, right. a belief system, in other words. Right. Now, let's put this in the framework of yes. steady-state economics. And, I mean, you just described a huge problem with trade, international trade, period. Yes. But how, how does this work against or for a steady-state economics where, yes. where we're saying, fundamentally, we can't just keep growing and growing and growing. And it seems to me like that is part of the problem. It's like it goes all the way back to Henry Ford and saying, well, you know, at some point your production is going to overtake your consumption. You're not going to have enough consumers to buy your product. So what does he do? He says, well, we need to raise wages so people can buy my cars. Yes, but I would say that the uh, state, state economics is not about that. Steady state economics is about not income inequality and purchasing power and things that you mentioned. Steady state economics is that we cannot grow anymore as a whole globe. Obviously, certain countries can grow right. as long as other countries do not grow, uh, but that there are environmental limits 
that as a result of environmental limits, we can't continue to grow. Right. And so why is a steady state as one of its strategies is there's a problem with international trade? Yes, because international trade in the hands of major corporations, it's in their interest to actually produce more and have people consume more, i.e. towards growth, because otherwise they couldn't really be making any profit. Right. Right? That's, so that's, that's kind of what idea. I meant by the Henry Ford thing. It's like, and it is a technological thing that we, in the 20th century, we got to where we could be so proficient with production where we can produce thousands and thousands of cars and we gear up our factories to produce constantly thousands and thousands of cars and what are we going to it's built on a model that you have to keep producing an extraordinary amount just to be profitable yeah and without necessarily giving the vast majority of people the income with which they can buy the cars or whatever else it is that we're producing right, yes right. that's right so and this is going to become even worse with automation and robots and what have you because a robot is not earning any money if it is earning money the robot doesn't expropriate that money and uh, right. use it for itself it goes to the owner of the robot right. that's why you know my principal suggestion about that is that any time that a machine takes the place of a human being, then that human being, together with other human beings, should own the machine that actually displaces them as a general function. We as a society can postulate you can't have a machine that takes away your job without considering how that person now is going to make an income. One solution is for the person or persons that are displaced by a machine necessarily get to own that machine. Well, that's a great idea, but that is not how the American uh, understands. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, they the, go, the, well, you got to go is, get in a different job. Is, it doesn't really matter. This is the thing that has now entered my consciousness in a very, very big way. If we insist to do things in the economy, in religion, in various other places, in the same way that we've done them before, in the face of environmental issues and in the face of increasing disparity in income and wealth, the only possible outcome is catastrophe. For me, it's a given now. So it doesn't really matter how we've done things in the past. It doesn't really matter. Well, this is going to... Either gonna... <laughs> we realize... This is going to be our conversation going forward That's because right. it's... Yeah. I, I'm, just, I'm just saying it's real obvious we've got major global resistance to some idea that rather than Mr. Coal Miner having to re relocate and retrain to get a job that pays half as much and is probably meaning a meaningless job the, the idea that rather than that that he could get a part ownership in automation is yes. is and not then, and then what i would say if if somebody disagrees with that then 
it's really imperative that we ask the question, and what would you do instead? Well, I love what your question. What would you do instead? I, I love that. I'm just, I'm pessimistic. Uh, we, we've got to have this discussion about how, how this is going to change because there's massive resistance to what we're talking about. I mean, you make a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. That's that's correct. But you have people invested in oil and gas, and they're not going to just bend over and say, no, "Oh, no, no, no. here, I, yeah." I'm uh, I'm certain that that's the case. It's not going. They're not going to bend over. I mean, I, we discovered that with respect to public banking in Colorado. They're not. That's why I say it's a matter of power as well as ideas. The thing that has come up as a major, major issue has been you can't have human progress and human growth without vision. Now, it's imperative to ground the vision in practicality. But you can't just say, or anybody just say, well, it's not practical. And the counterexamples that I gave, I've given in the past is, what about the American Revolution? I mean, you had one-third of the public being against it, one-third being indifferent and sitting on the fence waiting to see who's going to win, and one-third in favor. And what the hell were these guys thinking going against the biggest empire in the history of the world, thinking that they could have their own country? If that's not impractical, I don't know what is. Or my second favorite example, Gandhi. Here's a semi-naked, short Indian guy with spectacles, right, confronting the British Empire. What on earth was he thinking, right? And the third one, of course, is MLK. You know, here's a 25-year-old short black guy who is a pastor in a church. And what does he want to do is register black people in the South to be able to vote. I mean, the impracticality of that is overwhelming. So it requires not, I'm done with optimism. I'm done with pessimism. I'm involved with faith and courage. Those are the two principal guides that I have close to the age of 80. As I, we've talked about in the past, what else am I going to do with my life? Right, right. <laughs> Okay, so, but there are, as you bring up, very practical issues. So, we've got to first show that what is claimed by international free trade is false. That is to say, by the very criteria of Ricardo, it's not true. The other one, calling it free trade, also has, can be undermined. Here are two or three ideas there. Firstly, Free trade does not depend on freedom. It depends on compulsion. That is to say, a big corporation can go into a particular country and say to the government, hey, listen, you know, we can come here and your people will have uh, a meager income and here are the conditions for us to come here. We right. don't pay taxes. Yeah, yeah. There are no rules for how we treat the workers yeah. and we can pollute. There's, there is concern about that. They call that the race to the bottom. Well, that's right. This idea of calling it free trade is not. This is compulsion. So secondly, freedom essentially not for individuals but for corporations. Yes. We treat now corporations as individuals who have freedoms 
that are, you know, supported by the Declaration of Independence. Well, that's not what the Declaration of Independence supports. It's humans having the freedom, not corporations. We just talked about that. A, a fantastic attempt at debt forgiveness offered by the Biden administration to forgive minority farm debt, which yes. which has been predator loaning for almost as long as there's been minority farmers. farmers. And the, the complaint from the banking side is, oh, you're you're cutting into our profits. How are we going to make profits? And that's their idea of free trade is I want to be, I want to be free. I don't want any constraints on how I gain wealth by cheating others. I, as a corporation, though, not I as an individual, that's yeah. even because the corporation has right. considerable more power, both uh, political and economic, to impose their will on somebody else. Right. And even uh, libertarians say that, you know, the freedom of an individual is constrained by the the freedom of other people. You can't just have uh, freedom to impose on somebody else's freedom. So, you know, that's, again, pretty straightforward. The third one that I have here is we are looking for is to protect, not freedom, but freedom of property, not freedom of individuals. And there is no right to property. (laughs) So, in other words, if we go directly to the sources of what is good about America, trade betrays all of those values. Yes. I'm starting to say, if you have that opinion, in my estimation, you're un-American. Your definition of what it means to be an American is that you were born here, not that you have the values that we maintain America is built on. So we can go in that direction. And the last one that I have is the theory of international trade now is not free, but is hegemonic. Uh, Yes, exactly. That's the underlying notion. It is dominating, is not liberating. So if we call it free trade, we're essentially lying. It's not freeing people, it's dominating people. Yes. Here's uh, Mitt Romney in a Washington Post article who's warning of the All of a sudden, we have a Chinese existential, not just a threat, an existential threat to us. That's that's pretty profound to say, you know, our existence is going to be eliminated. Yes. And so he quotes, a dominant economy provides the wherewithal to mount a dominant military. Yes. Combined, we will win for China the hearts and minds of many nations attuned to their own survival and uh, prosperity. So basically, the existential threat is that Americans can't have hegemonic control of the world economy. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) That's our existential threat is that we won't be the one and only superpower who controls things both militarily but even more so by our economic, you know, system, which 
benefits us almost primarily and through international trade. And at the expense of others, because it's at the expense of their own resources, Yes, both capital resources, human resources, and environmental resources. Yeah, so here's... And that doesn't mean that China doesn't do that with respect to Africa, you know, because it itself defines itself as an empire in contrast to the American empire. Right. And they're better at it than the Soviet Union was. Right. So here's Michael Hudson's uh, talking about this. And he's in his podcast, he's been talking quite a bit about economic imperialism of the United States. He calls it monetary imperialism. And he says, of course, that is what really it comes down to. The United States is trying to become the only dominant power in the world. And in today's Financial Times, May 5th, one of the reporters said, it's as if the United States wants to be the world's absentee landlord and rent collector. So we're dealing with a monetary and a rentier phenomenon. Yes, that's right. U.S. wants wants and has had world dominance through monetary policy, trade dominated by U.S. dollars. Yes. And the source of that, the beginning of that, is 1944, Yes, uh, when uh, the United States, against Keynes's advice, turned the American dollar as the international currency, rather than what Keynes proposed is an international currency that is tied to no domestic or national currency. Why and who resisted that? The American uh, uh, delegation. Full That's of, how full the, of robber barons and <laughs> people. Well, it was the American government that yeah. decided that. But obviously, the American government is very much more influenced, even now, by corporations and the effect that they have on the political arena. I mean, that's another topic. But I think it's an extremely important topic that I even had a conversation with a Greek Cypriot friend yesterday, and we both agreed, and we had a discussion about how to propose that to others, namely that the United States is not a democracy, it's an oligarchy, and also because the oligarchs are associated with money, it's also a plutocracy. And it's the worst possible government that you can have if you have an oligarchy that's associated with plutocracy. I mean, even uh, a Hitler or a Mussolini, neither of them made money. They were just after the power, not the money. (laughs) Here we have a combination of both of those things. And it started creeping into my consciousness that when even very many American liberals to talk about our democracy. Firstly, democracy is not an invention of uh, the Americans. But secondly, apart from that, we don't have one. <laughs> we have remnants of one. Yes. We have elements of one. Well, I think we're coming front and center with the Trump supporters who are quoted on my Facebook quote by Michael Gershon who was saying there's a majority of Republicans who are saying, well, if it meant saving our country, what what they think is our country 
is bagging democracy and using violence, we should do that. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> More sophisticated people are saying, no, no, we shouldn't really do it through violence. That's very uncouth. Uncouth and... Uh, disgusting methods we should do it through ideology yes well that they've been doing it for the last 50 years with neoliberal yes. economics and this i think is coming to light in a very very strong way to have somebody in slavery you don't have to use the lash every now and then for purposes of demonstration and creating fear you do that but by and large the much more efficient and much more nice, seemingly nice way, is to convince people that they are slaves. And you do that with propaganda and unconscious kind of advertising, etc. Well, and Michael Hudson would say by indebting them. That's right. The permanent dead peons. I mean, you're... Yes, that's right. And I think most Americans are like that. They're like, well, yeah, I have a house, I have a car, I have some nice things, and I have giant amounts of debt that if I was ever really called to account for all that, I would go bust in a second. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it requires that you work all the time and you ha you don't have a life. Now, that's interesting about the post, you know, as we're leaving the pandemic and, and why people are not quick to jump back to work. Some of it is people are saying, I talk to my kids now. <laughs> I eat dinner with my family. I, I'm not working three and four jobs and only living so a few people can sit by the poolside in the Bahamas uh, sipping their pina coladas and collecting uh, rent. And we're talking uh, what is economic rent, which is monopolies. Basically, I'm skimming a whole bunch of money off the top for excessive pricing, right? Well, it's essentially one of the principal definitions of economic rent is that you don't pay the full cost of what you're yes. doing. Yes, Some, because somebody else is. That's right. You, <laughs> you transfer so the that cost, cost. The cost has to be paid. Yes. The cost is uh, something that you can't get away with. So if you don't pay it, somebody else is. If I don't pay for the cost of producing pollution, it's your lungs that are going to pay for it. For goodness sake, it's so, so simple, so straightforward. And yet, yet we're so beguiled by this. That's right. right. We're beguiled <laughs> because of the way that we uh, grew up with respect to just about anything, you know? I mean, it happens with religion. Yeah. That's why, with respect to politics and with respect to religion, about 90 to 95% of people don't change uh, religion or uh, politics uh, from their parents. Well, how can that possibly be? <laughs> It wasn't the case of the early church. You wouldn't even had an early church or yeah, Christians. You, 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 who... you didn't uh, choose a religion or a political view as a result of engaging with other people, with engaging in right. society, and deciding, you know, hey, Or listen, you were confronted you know. with a crucified Messiah. <laughs> That's right. It's inculcated rather than the result of a free right. dialogue with many people right. yeah, and yeah, uh, different orientations, etc. This is one of the most important gifts in my life that I received by growing up until the age of 12 in Alexandria, Egypt, which was so cosmopolitan, and we've talked about that in the past, is that our next-door neighbors were Jewish, they were British, they were Egyptian. So we could absorb the languages of other people 
And therefore, if you speak different languages and you think in different languages, you see a different world. Right. So you can quickly see how another person looks at the world. That doesn't mean that they're correct, but you know that there is another way other than your own right. of looking at the world. Right. So the name of the American uh, negotiator in Bretton Woods in 1944 is Harry Dexter. And he just nixed Keynes's idea, that great genius. By the way, speaking of Keynes, with respect to international trade, he said, I'm okay with having international trade in things that become very expensive for us to produce. You're not going to produce mangoes in Minnesota. You know, you're going to import them from either another right. state or right. from Latin America. Okay. But why on earth import Danish cookies? Wouldn't it be much more intelligent to exchange recipe. That's how fundamental these things become. Any child could understand it. But you're not putting in the formula of professional marketeers. We can make a quick buck by convincing Americans that Danish cookies are so much superior that you got to buy a, a Danish cookie. In there. I mean, there's so much more involved. In and this is the really remarkable effect that Freud's uh, nephew, Bernay, who was the father of marketing, basically. marketing, he was hired by American corporation to convince people, not through reason, but through implanting it in the unconscious. He's the nephew of uh, Dr. Freud, after right, all, right. that more is always better. There is no such thing as enough in all, but in all textbooks of economics, anywhere in the world. In the first chapter, they talked about the notion of scarcity, yes? And that's what economics is about. Mm -hmm. And scarcity consists of, on the one hand, limited resources at any period of time, and what? Unlimited wants. Unlimited wants. What do you call somebody that has unlimited wants? Selfish, insatiable. Uh. Yeah. An addict, I say. <laughs> the guy is sick. The guy is sick. And this is what you build economics on? Yeah. Come on. Well, this yes. Is, this and is corrupting. There are studies that have shown that people who study economics either are already, yes. uh, you know. Or become more greedy. Yes. <laughs> I present because that's in the textbook and then I say there's something else that we might want to use consumption for and that's the satisfaction of needs. Why is need so important? Because of two things. One is that needs are self-limiting. You need air. You need food. Isn't there a limit to how much you, you eat at any given moment? You know, you don't want more and more and more and more and more. Right. There are other needs, according to Maslow, you know, going all the way. And all of them are self-limiting. Mm -hmm. So it's something that already is inherent in needs that is self-limiting, not once. And to build an economy or to have an economic text that begins with that notion and builds on that notion. And, you know, going through all the way to PhD, never heard of these things. I had to find them on my own. I had to find these yes, things on my of own, course. and so did my fellow students. So one of the major problems in world trade today is that 
almost everything has to be traded in U.S. dollars. Yes. It gives America this astounding... Advantage. Yeah. A cheaty advantage, really. America does not understand that what kind of free ride we've been on. We keep talking about, oh, the richest... We're the wealthiest country in the world. I wish we'd stop saying that. For one, it's only about 1% of Americans who are the wealthiest, and most of America is not. For two, that's that's based on a, a cheaty system in which everybody in the world has to trade in U.S. dollars. What would uh, steady-state e- economics what? suggest as far as... Uh, well, you mentioned Keynes, who's, who said, well, we really need an international currency. I know right. that China and Russia and Iran and several... Uh, yeah, looking to have... An, yeah. Yes. Uh, but an that's, alter- again, only competition rather than having one that is neutral altogether and right. is not associated with any particular country. Well, what do you think about the cryptocurrency type thing? I, which... I can't speak about that because I haven't studied it at all. Yeah, because that's one of I the claims. I am is that... somewhat... Uh, very, very cautious. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand it yeah, myself. Me but either. That that is one aspect of the discussion is that it actually provides a a neutral currency for trade. Yes, but we can still have what Keynes has suggested, and there are people who argue that case because they've rediscovered Keynes, as it were, so many years after he died in 1946 of a severe heart attack. So you've Come prepared to talk about what would be the strategy going forward. Well, one is a global currency, and the other is... Is there any move towards that that you know of? um, There is some move on it, but I don't know very much about it, who's who's actually involved and what progress have they made and that sort of thing. Was it in any case the World Trade Organization no. and IMF at no. some point no. was envisioned as no. being something no, like None that? of those. They're stuck, in my estimation, in neoliberalism. The, none of the uh, international organizations that are be, uh, that were put together in Breton Woods, you know, ostensibly to help poor countries develop. That was the principal goal or claim right. to be the goal of those institutions. The other one is, again, very much out of the ordinary, and that is the following. I got that from this young Austrian economist by the name of Christian Felber, and it comes out of this notion that now it has been shown that if 70 or 80 or even 90 percent of Americans in polls or however we get to are in favor of a particular law. It barely ever passes. Well, that's true in America. That's right. And then the other one is, the other side of that is that laws that are passed have the support of 20% of Americans. So laws that we want are not passed and laws that we don't want are passed. And that is due to the power of money, which translates into political power in the United States, which has been growing, what we might call an elite. Now, the elite in the... oligarchy. Yes. Elite, however, is used rather than oligarchy. 
for the simple reason that elite implies some kind of wisdom and some kind of goodness. Whereas oligarchy is associated with nastiness and ignorance and fear. So we choose elite. This, in my estimation, is something that is beginning to come to the surface, that the elite, independently of Democrats or Republicans, are really interested in the status quo and changing things only to the extent that it doesn't damage the status quo for either of these groups. Right. And uh, Michael Hudson's pretty huge on that. He says the Democrats are just a moderate wing. That's right. That's right. That's why they call for reforms. They don't call, they don't challenge the basic building structure, as as it were. Okay, so the other, that we won't get to steady state and we won't have trade support steady-state economics unless we deepen our sense of what constitutes democracy. So democracy up to now has been about having access to voting. We started with landowners only being able to vote, then only white men, then now we've added women, we add some blacks, we etc., etc. Yes, so we've added now, of course, in the last four years that has been undermined somewhat. And so many liberals even consider, let's go back to where we were. And that's necessary, but not sufficient. If we just get back to where we were, we're going to still feed the conditions that got us into trouble to begin with. So that the idea is that we posit that there are not only individual and individual corporations and government. This has been the major fight, has it not been, between individuals and, and, uh, uh, and government, that the liberals are in favor of government, the conservatives are in favor of individuals, and we have to have, we have the talk is always about compromise always about finding a middle ground. What is beginning to come up, and which I've become very, very interested in, is that there is a third center of power, and it's called we the people. And we the people is not represented by government. In other words, representative democracy does not represent the will of we the people. And that this goes back to Christian... Ferber, who is saying most of what people are in favor of never gets legislated. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Christian so, Ferber, is that his name? Christian Felber. Felber. So he's only 49 years old. So he's a young fellow. And he suggests now, and that now we have the technology to be able to have, starting from small groups, discussing amongst themselves, and they would be the ones that produce laws, not Congress, but we the people produce laws, including what kind of free trade we want, what kind of trade rather, not free Mm. trade, what kind of trade we want as a people so that it benefits us and it benefits other people. So we're not talking about not having trade, that would be stupid, 
but it's also not having the kind of trade that we have now because it benefits some at the expense of the others, let alone at the expense of the earth. This is what I've been uh, attempting to understand first and how we get to that. We have a class at Oli in the fall where I'll introduce these ideas uh, with a number of people doing the presentations. So mm. I have two presentations with one other person. One is with that idea and the other one is with respect to taxes, that comes out of modern monetary theory. The modern monetary theorists say the following. We do not need to tax to get government money to spend on things that only government can spend on, like roads, like mm -hmm. police, like protection of education. education, this, that, and the other. The reason why we don't need to tax is that government, the central government, not f state governments and not local governments, can produce as much money as they want to. Absolutely. That's written in the Constitution, yeah? that Congress can produce that. But we can assign any other neutral institution to produce as much money as we need to engage the resources that we have. Okay. Which is a little tiny window of that with the aid package that Biden has come up with. Yes. Now, he still ties it to taxing wealthy people, to taxing corporations more, to taxing international transfers so that don't go to tax havens and all of that. But he's not yet anywhere near close to what these modern monetary theorists... And they come out of only one university, Kansas. So... That doesn't mean that we dispense with taxation, but the role of taxation is not to raise money. The role of taxation is to direct the market system. So, for example, if we want less of pollution, we tax it. If we want less inequality of wealth or of income, we tax it. Whatever we want less of, we tax. Whatever we want more of, we subsidize. It's very, very straightforward. And so you see to uh, so-called conservatives or whoever it is that is in favor of the market system, you say, we're all in favor. It's a fantastic mechanism. It's a wonderful tool. Do you want to ever go get rid of saws or screwdrivers? Of course not. Only if you use them as tools. If you create them into gods or goals, then... Apocalypse, <laughs> then catastrophe, but not get rid of them, use them for what they're good at doing, do you see? So we can use the language of people that are accustomed to, to say, here's what can be done here. Right. And we need your cooperation. We need you, firstly, to understand these things. We need you to be talking to friends of yours, etc., rather than sitting on the fence or being cynical or going into despair or committing suicide. Right. That's what I have for you in terms of uh, solutions. I know that they're somewhat abstract, but they're very doable. There are people that have thought this through. My own uh, remaining concerns is to have Stephanie Kelton and Michael Hudson and the others be very much more precise. If you say you've got to cancel debt, Tell me, Michael, how are you going to do it? Tell me in as much detail as possible. Right. How do you do it? Right. The same thing with uh, Kelton. What, what are the obstacles to doing it? 
And how would you overcome them? And they say, here's how to do it. And that's why it's reasonable to do it. That pretty much covers all the strategies of uh, steady state economics that you laid out for me. Oh, I, I can't remember when Two we started ago. this project. <laughs> and we finally got through all of them. Yes. My plan now is, we've actually talked about it all along, but maybe we're going to give a final push to how can we really change things? How do we change the, the storyline? Because the yeah, storyline, the narrative, the story for sure, we have the conservative element that is convinced that, as Yanis uh, Varoufakis says, it's easier for her to think about the end of the world <laughs> than the end of capitalism, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've got to get to a point where it's like, there can be an end to capitalism and we need to think and beyond that. it's not that. the end of the world. No, it's not the end of the world. It's not going to be the end of the world. So uh, that's what I want to spend, so what we are going to spend some time in the next couple sessions is, is talk about how, how that narrative can change. To add to that, uh, Keith, is the influence of religion. I really think that this is a necessity. Otherwise, we sacrifice an element in the human that we don't use. It's just like not using reason, for example. Yes. This is a really uh, very, very troublesome and also really stupid not to use the gifts that we were given. Right. And one of the gifts, apparently, that we're given is the capacity to connect with the sacred. Right. Well, it's like, uh, and here's another Greek name, Aristotle Papanikolaou. Yeah. <laughs> who I just finished his book on the mystical as political. And he uh, argues uh, in, in an article on public orthodoxy, the foolishness of, quote, secular government and secular thinking this that thinks that religion is going to go away that's right and he said that's that's just such utter foolishness and what that creates is religion becoming stooges for that's dictators right. and tyrants that's right it becomes dogmatic too. yes yes that's right but it it's still i mean i basically call myself a theologian that's what i yes, am i'm a yes. theologian and it, it always amazes me when I read, we're going to create this consortium of scientists and physicists and anthropologists and counselors and psychologists. And it's like, you never mention a theologian in there. That's out there in nowhere land. I'm actually uh, slogging through a book by a Russian Orthodox theologian of the 20th century named Sergei Bolgakov, who wants to ground his quote, philosophy of economics on religious faith, he calls his idea, his philosophy of economics is ideal realism. Very good. That's exactly. Oh, I must read <laughs> and it. He, he, fights, he fights on two different levels. That's he, right. Uh, he fights what he calls the economic materialists, which are both neoliberals that's and right. communists yes, or Marxists. That's they, right. They, where it's just arguing against Homo economicus that right. that we all we are That's, are economic. Uh, yeah, that either capitalist or socialist. Yes, you know can be that. And, way. and I quoted on my Facebook a quote by uh, Sergei Bolgakov, who says, "All economists are Marxists, even if they hate him." 
<laughs> he's arguing against this this that all we are is materialistic creatures yes that's right uh just of production and consumption that's it that's right and that's neoliberals on one side that's america on one side and that's also communism on the other side Absolutely. which he's facing in the early in the, part of the 20th century he's, he's facing Union. this as a big this huge thing and, and then at the other side he's arguing against the german philosophers and abstractionists and he said and he just says i i can't stand armchair yes you know thinkers he, he goes what oh. what good is any thinking if it can't get put into practice absolutely <laughs> and he absolutely. says and he also says we don't we don't need to wait until we come up with a perfect that's right theory or theology or abstract philosophy exactly. to, to start acting <laughs> and he actually ar argues that it's as we act that yes both thinking he he considers thinking as labor and physical labor yes uh, that's where the the true dynamic of economics and he he says i'm not for progressivism you know yeah we're moving towards some utopic future no he says the real dynamic the real goodness and the hope is in the process and this is very orthodox that it's in this dynamic relationship, yes, you know, very, of, very of good, divine yeah. and human. So we can talk more about that. Where I am as a person is we can't do with it spirit, without spirituality. There, I mean, I've, I've read people that call themselves atheists, but they still say you have to have some sense of the transcendent about you. You can't, yeah. you can't just be absorbed in... In intellectual the, in the materialistic world you and know? intellectual world yeah. and that's why i see when encountered now people in classes or elsewhere i say look if you disagree with what i'm saying or what i'm in favor of or what i stand for it's not sufficient you've got to say what do you have instead otherwise you're sitting on uh, on a fence and shooting well, that's what we've got going on in America right now. Okay. Well, well it's not only America, though, right? America well, is yeah. in a kind of extreme form, if you will. Yeah. But there are plenty of other places where right. uh, same thing is going on. All right, Alec. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. That was a, a. You're awesome as always. Well, that was quite a session, wasn't it? It was. Well, you got you got yourself worked up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs>